Welcome. It's my pleasure to introduce Jonathan Worthington, a, uh, a person near and dear to us. Uh, so I'll give you Jonathan's kind of professional resume. Uh, he graduated from VCU and then got a couple of master's degrees at Reform Seminary in um, Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, then went off to Aberdeen University over in Scotland, but that uh, yielded a transfer of, uh, because the advisor that he had went to Durham University in England. And so Jonathan transferred his degree program down to Durham and finished his PhD in a New Testament theology in a a very interesting group of folks uh, at Durham that was really top of the line in theology in the world at that time. Uh, he then took a position over in, um, in Ireland, in Belfast, um, at a Belfast Bible College, and then uh, also uh, part-time at, was it Queen's University? Uh, at Queen's, and then uh, after three years, came back to the United States and assumed a position at Training Leaders International, which is the way that Kirby and I feel uh, one of the best missions that uh, uh, is out there. Uh, of course, there are a lot of other really good missions that we support, but uh, this is a, an excellent uh, concept. I'm sure he'll tell us about it today. So uh, he uh, served as the vice president of Training Leaders International, has recently changed his uh, position to something that he feels is uh, more in line with his um, kind of uh, skills and, and uh, giftings. So um, I, I'll leave it to Jonathan to tell what he wants to about his new position and to talk with us about gratitude around the world. So my pleasure, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be introduced by someone uh, such as yourself. Thank you, Dad. And it's a, it's a joy to look around the, uh, the room right here and see uh, people uh, whom I've known for uh, 44 years and others who I've known for 20 and others who I don't know, but uh, I have a feeling I would be very blessed by knowing. Uh, Christ's presence played a very important part in my life uh, growing up there. Uh, I have, uh, well, all my memories for my first uh, 20 years of life in terms of church uh, are at Christ's presence, uh, as well as coming back over the past 20 some years. Uh, so I, I, uh, I was shaped a lot by the people, by you all uh, at Christ's presence, uh, the, the community around it, and, and I don't forget that. In fact, I, I'm very grateful for it. Uh, I'm grateful for a lot of things. I know you've had some really good talks. Uh, I've watched them. Uh, Libby, thank you for kicking it off, uh, talking through some very uh, practical and meaningful and challenging points of gratitude as you walk through life with the Lord and each other. Uh, we had a, there was a great talk uh, about um, being impetuses, 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 impeti, being plural impetus for, uh, for gratitude in other people's lives. Uh, and then last week, uh, Dr. Mike McCullough 
uh, taught some very uh, helpful things about what gratitude is and, and how we know. Uh, this evening, I'm going to share a bit, kind of tell some stories about uh, some aspects of my life uh, for which I'm exceedingly grateful uh, that are a bit surprising, though. At least they surprised me. I have, uh, I have so many things to, to burst with gratitude for, but I've selected a few that relate to uh, some of my experiences uh, either in a different part of the world or now uh, working with people from different parts of the world and, uh, and being challenged uh, to look at some, some issues, uh, some values, some life situations differently or in a, in a broader perspective. And I view those as very important. Um, so even though uncomfortable, uh, I'm very, I'm very um, thankful for those. And so I'm going to share a few of them with you, kind of uh, give you a window into one of the ways that I think about following the Lord specifically in cross-cultural uh, missions. As my dad said, I uh, work for Training Leaders International. We train pastors and other church leaders all over the world who don't have much or any access to theological training, to biblical training. Uh, so as much as you're benefited from Kevin uh, and from many people at Christ Press who have studied theology, studied how to read the Bible, you are the beneficiaries of a tremendous wealth of knowledge and skill that is not accessible to most pastors and church leaders around the world. But we're trying to, uh, by God's grace, uh, remedy that by bringing it to them. But that brings challenges, of course. Uh, does everything that America theology do transfer really well? Is everything that we do good? Even things that are good, does it actually work in other places in the world? Do we have things to learn from the way people uh, think about God and, and do church in very different places in the world? I've been forced to think about a lot of these uh, that growing up, I never thought I would need to think about. Let me give you first a window uh, into, am I sharing? Y'all can see, okay. Since I'm talking in Virginia now, I can say y'all, right? I've tried to beat it out of myself. Depending on where I go, I've had to learn how to say use and usins. A world of gratitude. Uh, I do want to put an image in your mind here at the beginning, and uh, we should come back around to it at the end. Uh, so keep these pretty colors in your mind, just in the back, hook it somewhere back there. I've been stretched by God through other cultures. For example, I have been uh, surprised by exactly how God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, and God's goodness have come together in some very unexpected ways as I get to know Christians around the world. Very quickly, so we're on the same page. Uh, here is the way I'm using sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness. I think these three aspects of God are, are so important to keep together. God is sovereign, wise, and good. Uh, sovereignty, God can do anything, and he does whatever he wants. He is sovereign. Wisdom, God knows the best things to do and the best ways to do them. God is perfectly wise. 
and goodness. God always has good intentions, always does good, and always produces good. God is sovereign, wise, and good. Forgetting one or another of, of these uh, is, not, is not good. Uh, a lot of people around the world know what it's like to be under a ruler who has pretty extreme sovereignty. He can do anything he wants, and, and he does whatever he wants. Uh, maybe even wisdom in the sense of being clever and understanding things, but he's evil. And, and that's a terrifying thing to, to have sovereignty and wisdom without goodness. Or if you have a wise and good king, but he doesn't have any power to do what he knows is good and what he knows how to do, that's a scary thing as well. But fortunately, uh, in God's providence, he is sovereign, wise, and good. And I get to see these aspects of God uh, coalesce, converge uh, in all sorts of interesting ways that I didn't see coming, and it has stretched me. Thinking about um, thinking about what Mike McCullough shared last week, at least one of the little things that he shared in about minute 24, if you want to go back and listen, he talked about uh, different things that make our gratitude higher. And one of the things, uh, we are more grateful, we have higher gratitude when we are surprised by something unexpected, an unexpected gift or an unexpected kindness. If we're expecting it, we're great, grateful, but not as much as when we're shocked by it. Uh, and that's definitely been my story. And so I'll tell a few of those, a few of those aspects. Uh, before I jump into specific ways that with my work with Training Leaders International has put me in contact with people um, who have stretched me and that I'm grateful for. Let me give you just a kind of big category to think in about culture. And I'll do it by talking a little bit about Scotland. We spent six years in Scotland. Both of our girls were born there. It's got a lot of history. Uh, it's uh, a lot of good movies come out of there. You know why it's called a kilt? Because we don't kilt everyone who called it a skirt. Of course, uh, <laughs> pants. I think you mean long-sleeved diapers. So a lot of what we think about in terms of culture are the surface level things that you automatically see or hear or taste that catch you off guard that are not what you think of. And that's an aspect of culture, but that's not actually what I'm going to be referring to when I'm talking about culture uh, and being stretched by other cultures and being grateful to God for that. I'm thinking about the, the deeper things, the, the things that go down beyond or below those uh, surface manifestations of differences. And this cluster of three pictures will capture perfectly what I mean. I'm sure you can see immediately. Uh, the medical profession, how people greet in public, and eggs. Of course, I, I don't even need to explain this. It's just obvious how that helps us understand culture in a more dynamic and rich way. So I'll just move on from there. Just kidding. One of the things that I started noticing at the end of our nine years in the UK, United Kingdom, uh, I was washing dishes in Northern Ireland, uh, thinking about going back to the States. Uh, visas were changed. Uh, change. We had no control over that, and we were going to have to come back. So I was thinking, 
everybody's going to be asking me what's different about Britain than America. And I wanted to, to think hard about uh, some of the deeper things that, um, that are different, sometimes even clash. And I was thinking about how the healthcare world works. Let me just give you a, just a brief insight. Uh, British people think that Americans are invasive with how we do medicine. That we just rush in and you know, try to fix everything the moment we see it. Americans don't call that invasive, we call that proactive. Uh, you know, and we're able to catch some bad things before they turn into worse things because we are proactive in how we handle health issues. The British uh, in general tend to have a, a more reactive system. Well, let's wait and see because not everything that looks bad actually is bad or turns out to be bad. Uh, and there are benefits to both of these ways of thinking, the more proactive or invasive, the more reactive. Uh, for example, like I mentioned, if you're proactive, you can catch bad things before they develop and become dangerous or, or even deadly. Uh, and so Americans have caught more issues, uh, say with prostate cancer, something like that. Uh, by rushing in though, and kind of cutting things out, uh, we do create knock-on problems that wouldn't have been there. Think uh, impotency and bladder, loss of bladder control, things like that, and then for the prostate issue. Uh, and the Brits say, yeah, we don't catch as many. So a few more people die, a few more men die uh, each year from prostate cancer than in the States. But um, a lot of prostate cancer is not actually bad. And if you go in and you cut out the stuff that's not going to be bad and you cause other damage, um, we don't want to do that. So it, there's some benefits to both sides. This is just to illustrate uh, that these are not the same way of looking at life uh, in the medical world. But it's the exact same thing with greeting people in public. That lady who's reaching out her hand, uh, that is kind of a typical American. You walk right up to somebody you don't know. Not everybody does this, but in general, stick out your hand and you introduce yourself because that's how you make friends. Well, that's very proactive, right? Brits think it's very invasive. Um, they're not ready for it yet. And they take a more reactive stance, kind of a hold back. I'll get to know you. Don't worry. Um, I'm not rushing anything. And so they have a more reactive way of greeting people in public. We have a more proactive way, uh, which can cause problems. We can offend people that wouldn't have been offended if we had held back. But then again, the Brits don't meet people as fast uh, as we do. So there are some positives and negatives to both systems, but it, you see it's the same basic value. Uh, what is, how do you navigate life, healthcare, reading in public, and of course, eggs. When we got to Scotland, we noticed in the supermarket that the eggs were not refrigerated. And we thought, that's just crazy. <laughs> of course you refrigerate, what, do they not know that you refrigerate eggs? So we would get home and we'd immediately put ours in the refrigerator, but then we'd go to a friend's house and we'd see the eggs sitting out on their counter, room temperature. And we're like, you know, how, have they not read the studies? Uh, and it, it actually took years before I, I decided, maybe I should look into this and, and figure out why. Is it just that they're ignorant and they don't know what we Americans know? And as it turns out, there's more to the story. And it even aligns with uh, the other uh, issues. Uh, in the 70s, maybe, there was a big salmonella poison problem, uh, and the Americans did 
what Americans do. And we rushed in proactively and we decided to wash all eggs that go in the supermarkets uh, because we found out salmonella is on the outside of the shell, not inside. So you wash all of them. Doesn't matter if they have salmonella or not. You wash them, you're done with it. You never have an issue with salmonella again. The Brits decided to take a more reactive stance and say, yeah, but actually relatively few have salmonella. Um, so why be so invasive? Because once you wash the outside of the shell, you wash off the nat natural waxy coating that clogs the pores, therefore opening the shell up so the bacteria now can get into the shell and really create a problem. So you have to refrigerate washed eggs, but the natural coating clogs the pores and you don't have to wash non-washed uh, non eggs, don't have to refrigerate non-washed eggs. So actually they don't have to, and they have a reason for it. We do have to, and we have a reason for it. And it turns out it's the exact same approach to life. Proactive, but create more problems. Reactive, miss some problems. So all this is to, to portray that when I'm thinking about being confronted with different cultures, I'm not right now thinking about uh, the fun and quirky and uncomfortable surface level stuff, like uh, what people eat or the language or uh, what they wear. I'm thinking of what's below the surface, what makes us tick, uh, what do we value in life and how does that kind of deep value system manifest in very different parts of society to then look very different. Now, that was my, kind of my initial experience uh, living in a different culture as a minority, as an immigrant uh, for almost a decade and learning the hard way um, that, that there is a lot going on. Uh, and I jumped to a lot of conclusions for a long time uh, and still do. Uh, but now that I've joined Training Leaders International, I get to intensify uh, my ignorance and my mistakes uh, because I have many more opportunities for much more gratitude and stretching, stretching that has brought me gratitude. And you can see from this map, these are uh, most of the places where we're training pastors or other church leaders in various ways. Uh, so there are lots of opportunities for messing up, but also learning. I'm gonna mention just a few, a few kind of big aspects of different cultures that I've come face to face with, have been confused with, and then been challenged and stretched, uh, and actually have come to understand Jesus himself better because of this stretching. And it has equipped me better. One of them is called orality, the idea that um, a lot of people in this world uh, learn best through oral and oral, sorry, oral and oral means, not by reading even if they can read. Uh, one is an issue of power. Uh, I'll use the term power distance in a few moments. Uh, one is collectivity, collectiveness versus individual. And the last that I'll mention is uncertainty. And I'll give some stories that go with each of these. I could have used a lot of other things. Uh, orality, if you're interested in digging into some research, if you have time and that kind of passion, uh, you can start by looking up the name Walter Ong in 1980. He put out a book called Orality and Literacy that, that launched kind of a direction in the studies of oral peoples. There have been tons since then, but that's a good starting place. Uh, power dynamics, 
collective individual and uncertainty are three categories from a, a guy named Gert Hofstede, uh, who is a, a Dutch, I believe, um, psychologist, a cultural psychologist. Um, the, the underlying thing in each of these four clashes uh, or four places where I've been stretched over the past number of years uh, is that I've come out grateful that God is stretching me in these uncomfortable ways. Thinking about orality first, let me tell you a little uh, story about uh, one of my experiences in the Philippines. A few years ago, uh, our team of trainers was going to teach um, a, a course on the Bible, how to understand and communicate the Bible, uh, to a group of about 60 uh, pastors and Filipino missionaries to other Filipino tribes. And we landed uh, here in the, the biggest island called Luzon, a gorgeous place. Then uh, we stayed right here at this beach. And every day we would get in a van, pack into a van. We had a bunch of us. Um, we'd have our bags, not all of them always, and often bringing in coconuts or something else, uh, like sardines in a van. And we'd drive off into the jungle uh, to a training facility um, that New Tribes Mission owns and that let us use for this. Uh, we do this training one week every four months over three years. And that's one course, or that's three courses a year, uh, nine courses in how to understand and communicate the Bible uh, over a three-year period. And that's what these brothers and sisters have committed to and, uh, and have given us some great feedback from and how they're using this uh, in their preaching and teaching ministries. So this is a glimpse of the, the 60 or so men and women that we're training. We would break off into smaller groups. Uh, so that we could really have some good dialogue over the text of scripture and, and God, his character in Christ. Here's a, a picture. Um, it turns out I'm tall. Some of you who know me and know that I'm 6'4", that's not shocking, but I, I sometimes get surprised by it when I go to other places. Uh, my colleague, who was actually teaching this group of students, uh, is on the far right. His name is Wayman. Uh, and I came in and taught a little bit for him and observed. And I got to know this lady on the left in the green shirt named Maria. She uh, came up to me after the final class. Uh, I had just given them the challenge. Okay, you finished your first course on how to know God's scripture and yourselves as, as leaders in the church. Uh, now, over the next four months before we come back, uh, take what we've taught you and teach it to other people that you're already ministering to. And here's our teaching manual translated into your language you can use. And when we come back in four months, uh, we'll talk about how it went and we'll think through what, what you could do again, what maybe you can do better. So she, Maria came up to me uh, very excited. And she said, I have loved how we've studied scripture, how we've, we've, looked in a like, passage of scripture and Genesis one was one of them. And we circled words and we drew underlines and we wrote in it. And, and I learned so much by doing this. And I know exactly who I'm going to teach this to six ladies up in the, the hills, one of the tribes I'm working with, uh, but none of them can read. How am I going to get them to, to circle and underline scripture? And I thought, Ooh, 
hmm, that's a really good question. And, uh, and one that we really need to wrestle with. So right then and there, we were able to brainstorm a bit and, and think through. I, I knew a little bit about orality, learning through oral means. Um, you know, I gave her some ideas about how she could read, you know, give the ladies a question, like, how many times does it say, and it was good? And then you read it to them, and they're basically, they're circling it in their mind as they're listening to, to God creating. And then you ask them a question, uh, how often does God say, um, and it was so. And then you read it again, and they're basically underlining this in their mind. And so she got really excited that it actually might be doable. Uh, I need to learn more about that. But one thing that, that I was confronted with right there is that there's just a world of differences that I know nothing about, but that are really important for how people know God through his word when they can't read or when they can't read well or when they don't learn mainly by reading. And I became very grateful. Uh, it, was, it was uncomfortable, I had to think on my feet, I, I was ignorant and it became very known. Um, but all of that, God used to stretch me to, uh, to now think more and, and research more and experiment more and talk with people who know more and um, then be able to, to improve uh, the training, the biblical training in places like uh, Maria's ministry. So I'm very grateful to God that he surprised me with Maria and her challenge and that God is stretching me in the field of orality. Another cultural category that uh, I had never really thought much about is the, is the issue of power, power distance, the distance that a teacher has from students in terms of authority and, and power uh, over their learning. A lot of cultures are, um, are more egalitarian. They have low power distance. So the, the teacher, or you could say the parent or the politician, um, doesn't actually have as much power over students or the child or the public. And both parties view this as good. This is valuable. We want this to be a low power distance. The United States is one of those, not the most. Uh, Sweden, I believe, is the most uh, low power distance. But a lot of the cultures that we go into to, to help uh, pastors and others learn God's word and, and and how to preach and teach it faithfully are high power distance cultures. That means that they view a, a big difference in power and authority between the teacher, parent, and, and president, say, and the student, um, child, and public. And, and they think that's good. That if you try to balance those in some way, think, no, this is completely inappropriate. Don't do that. Well, I, I had a um, one type of experience with power dynamics in Brazil recently, I just got back um, not too long ago, a few weeks ago, uh, contrasted with another experience in the Philippines. So I could have used this illustration from actually a lot of cultures that I've been in. Uh, real uh, briefly with Brazil, this is a picture of me teaching a course. This one's a Master of Divinity course at a seminary that we helped a church a launch about 10 years ago, and now we provide some teachers, about 25% of their professors. So I'm teaching a course on uh, Greek exegesis of Ephesians, and boy, we had a great time wrestling with God's word. And Brazil, 
happens to be a fairly low power distance culture in general. There are actually a lot of cultures within Brazil and they're not all the same, but the group that I was working with are, were fairly egalitarian in terms of this authority structure. And so it was fairly comfortable for me uh, going from the States into that. Uh, I was able to, to use language uh, and a posture of, you know, we're, we're learning together in this. Um, uh, we're kind of co-students working together, learning Christ and his word together. Um, of course, they viewed me as their professor. They viewed me as somebody who's, who's learned more and, and, and taught it before. Um, but there was kind of a camaraderie there uh, that was very much uh, us side by side learning together in some ways. Contrast that with the, the main group that I taught in the Philippines, uh, which is this group right here, uh, where Philippines is one of the highest uh, power distance cultures. Uh, that there is. And I had a, a colleague named Alex that learned this the hard way. Uh, Alex is a great teacher, uh, a young guy, but knows a lot um, and is very teachable, which, which really helps. Uh, he was teaching uh, a group and, and he made the same comment that I just made a moment ago of him saying to the class, I'm just, a, I'm just learning this with you. You know, we'll learn this together. And something changed in the room. And he couldn't put his finger on it, but it was very clear that something was off. And they got to the end of that session. They're on coffee break. Uh, and his interpreter, fortunately, was aware of this dynamic going on and pulled Alex aside and said, you, you pretty much undercut yourself as a teacher uh, and have made it very difficult for you, for you now and for them to learn from you. Um, they don't want a, a fellow student up there. Uh, they view that as pointless and not good. Uh, you're here to teach them and to guide them where you know they need to go. To have that authority distance. So I, now they're not totally lost. I think you can kind of kind of gain them back, gain their trust back. But just to let you know, um, that it's going to be an uphill road now for them to trust you uh, as their professor. Well, that's very different than the way Americans do it. Uh, being confronted with this, uh, it stretched me, uh, stretched me to think through, uh, are there ways that, uh, that it's very valuable to, to have a higher power distance and ways that it's very valuable to have a more equal power distance? I think all of us could say, uh, yeah, we see that in parenting. Um, you know, problems have happened when the American parenting system has been, well, let's just be buddies. I just want to be friends with my, with my kid uh, and have lost kind of the sense of, of authority over your child. Um, it's, but it's the same in learning as well in, in the classroom. So stretching me, God has stretched me by confronting me with these very different cultures, uh, specifically about power dynamics. If you want to read a very interesting series of stories in the Gospels where Jesus is having a lot of uh, power plays, power battles with the leaders, who has the authority to speak God's truth? Who has the authority and power to be the arbiter of truth for God's people? Uh, read Mark 11 to 12 in that light. Chief priests, scribes, and elders 
Do they have the authority and the power to be the arbiter of truth for God's people? So they confront Jesus. What about the Pharisees and Herodians? What about the Sadducees? What about the scribe? Time and time again, uh, Jesus basically humiliates the leaders who are trying to humiliate him in public and shows that, that he actually is the one that has the power and authority to listen to rather than the others. Uh, and I learned, um, I learned from this something about Jesus and following him by being confronted with a different way to understand power and authority. Uh, we're dealing with the power distance between God and humans, which is extreme, I mean, it's infinite. Uh, he also has become one of us and calls himself a brother, um, but he still maintains a very high power distance in terms of, well, he's Lord and we're not. And that's really important. Uh, so we not only need to learn together as equals, which is valuable, but we really do need a Lord who speaks and we listen, learn, and live. Does that play out in, uh, in teaching and learning in certain cultures? So again, God has stretched me uh, in some ways that have been uncomfortable, but I'm now grateful to that uh, because I understand Jesus better and I'm better equipped to help others uh, learn Jesus. Another area uh, where I've been stretched uh, and I'm grateful for it is the idea of collectivity, collective versus individual. My time in India highlighted this. India is a very collective culture, viewing that everybody views their sense of identity as just part and parcel as, as part of the group. Um, in some places, you can ask them, you know, ask somebody, well, what do you want? What do you want? And I don't even know what, what that means. You know, the, the group has said this is, and, and it gets very confusing. Um, here's a, a little glimpse of, of collectivist driving that, um, that is a little off-putting when you're used to very individual follow the, the rules uh, on the road. And if anybody else gets out of line, then there's a big problem and it really messes you up. Well, this is relational driving. Uh, including cows, Oop, don't hit the cows, they're sacred. I learned a lot uh, being in India, um, including that idea that this is driving according to relationship, not driving according to rules. And they're positives and negatives of both systems, as long as you're in the proper system when you're doing it. Here's the, the group uh, that I was personally working with in North India. I'll draw your attention to the man in the red shirt, uh, whose name is Marcus. Uh, I asked him, I asked everybody about uh, their sense of call. Um, you know, when, when did you sense that God was calling you to pastorate or to some kind of leadership position? And, uh, and Marcus looked at me like, what kind, what kind of question is that? It's just a weird question. You know, I'm used to uh, us in, in America talking about um, a call, you know, when God kind of, you, you got this personal sense of, of weight that, that God has put on you. It's confirmed by others. Yes, but really it's, you know, what do, do I personally feel called to do? And he said, my village my village needed a pastor. We all came to know Jesus when the missionary came through. 
and they needed a pastor and uh, we also needed a medical doctor. And so they selected me to go get trained to be a pastor and this other man to go get trained to be a, uh, a doctor and to go back to the village after our training. And, and so that's what I am. Um, and I was trying to you know, push on that. Well, you know, do you feel any kind of personal sense of, of obligation or desire? And, and he was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. This is, this is the way it is. Um, they told me I'm going to be the pastor. Uh, so that stretched me. But yet learning a little bit more about uh, how relationships work uh, in collectivist cultures and some of the gaps in American hyper-individualism uh, has really stretched me in some good ways. Uh, and I'm grateful for it. You can learn a lot about Jesus and following Jesus uh, when you think about collective nature uh, and the individual. For example, the whole idea of Jesus's body has both of these ideas in it. Uh, Jesus's body and all the parts together, it's one thing. And, and a body part doesn't function on its own. I mean, it's really gross to, to think about the arm not with the body. <laughs> sure, it's an individual part, so that's there. It's an individual, but, um, but it, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to only be an individual. There's a very meaningful, necessary way that the individual has to be part of the body. Uh, and I, I got to think, as I'm confronted with these ideas in other cultures, collectivism and, and individualism, thinking about this metaphor, uh, are, they, are these equal measure? Um, is it equal measure, collective and individual, kind of like half and half? Like, well, not exactly, because the body is, is the collective working together. Each part is individual, but only functioning properly uh, in relationship with others and for the body. Um, so really there's collectivism kind of interweaved or interwoven, interwove uh, through the entire metaphor, the entire functioning of the church. Uh, it's not that there's not individualism. In fact, that's really important that individuals come to Jesus. Uh, individuals trust him. Uh, nobody can trust Jesus for you as an individual. There are things such as um, coveting that is highly individual. It's, it's internal. Um, but Jesus doesn't assume or emphasize individuals as much as Americans do. And I think that's important to wrestle with. It certainly has challenged and stretched me. Uh, and as I come away from it, I'm very grateful for that because I think I understand Christ and his body um, better now than I did before I was confronted with some uncomfortable differences. The last one I want to mention is the idea of uncertainty. And I'll tell you a story in Uganda. Um, Gert Hofstede's category of cultural dynamics is called the uncertainty avoidance. Some cultures um, are, they try to avoid uncertainty at all costs. They're, they're very high on avoiding uncertainty. Uh, other cultures in general are low on an uncertainty avoidance, or you might say they're very uncertainty acceptant. Uh, they accept gray and, uh, and not fine, finely defined things. In general, 
America tends to be fine with uncertainty. Now within America, there are still these subcultures that, are, that clash and I see it all the time of black and white people versus gray people and just uh, you know going at it. But in general, as a whole, all Americans are kind of uh, okay with uncertainty relative to other cultures like in Uganda, which is highly avoidant of any uncertainty. I was in Uganda a few years ago, driving out in the bush uh, in Northern Uganda, going onto this uh, compound that has a school and a ministry for women to, to earn money and farmers to earn money, as well as training pastors. So I'm working with this group of Ugandan uh, and South Sudanese pastors. And uh, one of them begin, uh, tells a story about Joseph Kony. Uh, maybe all of you will remember Joseph Kony and the, the Lord's Resistance Army. It was right here where we were. There's a, a mountain called the Mountain of Blood that's just a few miles from this site. And that was the main stronghold of Joseph Kony, Joseph Kony's men. And one of the things Kony would do uh, is steal young boys, force them to murder their parents, uh, usually with some kind of machine gun or some kind of gun. Uh, and then they become hit part of his army. One of our pastors uh, had been one of those boys. Uh, Coney had, had taken him and, and told him to, to shoot his parents right there. And he, he described, I can't shoot my parents. And then his dad came over to him and, and told him very gently, you have my permission, you have our permission to shoot us. They're going to kill us anyway. You may as well live and who knows what God will do. So you have our permission to kill us. And so he did. He killed his parents. And not long after, uh, he did escape from the LRA. And through a, an amazing journey, the Lord showed tremendous mercy, not only saving his soul, but even saving his, his mind, uh, his emotions. Um, I don't know how somebody can function like he does with that kind of, uh, of experience in their past. But the reason I'm telling you this is a lot of cultures who have had a very hard time, a very war-torn, uh, have understandably uh, an aversion to uncertainty. And it manifests even in the classroom where one of the, one of the pastors might ask, the teacher might ask me a question, you know, well, well, what should we do in this situation? And me and my American grayness, you know, I, I usually answer something like, well, uh, we sort of have to hold some things in tension. You know, there, there's this thing to keep in mind from scripture, and then there's this thing to keep in mind from scripture. And, and really by holding both of those together, you can kind of, in wisdom, uh, you know, there's not, a, there's not a black and white way thing to do in that situation. You, you need to use wisdom that's a bit uncertain. And, and he'll ask the question again, yeah, no, no, I know, but, but what do I do in this situation? And it sometimes can get a little bit tense. Uh, and that's a clash of this aspect of culture. Uh, and it's incredibly understandable um, why these, at least that one, one major reason why these two different cultures approach a life situation needing crystal clarity to survive or having the space, uh, freedom and, and security to, uh, uh, to think with maybe more nuance about that. But there are situations in life everywhere, not just over there, where a crystal clear answer is incredibly important. Um, 
and also space and life where um, where it's you need to see the wiggle room. And I'm grateful to God for stretching me by seeing this different cultural dynamic in learning and life and grappling with uncertainty, avoidance, and acceptance. So I want to uh, I want to wrap things up now and get ready for some questions uh, by pointing uh, to just four categories that I've been learning about Jesus and following him, thinking about certainty and uncertainty, and how both are necessary. And um, and our particular culture might be missing out on some of these, and another culture might be missing out on others. Certainty, God's character, God's word, God's spirit, the fact that God is sovereign, wise, and good, and that he will never change. Can you be stretched in your gratitude for the certainty of God's character and his word and his spirit? That's probably easier for us to be stretched uh, by. Uh, but what about uncertainty? There is uncertainty for us, not to God, but for us, in exactly how. God will employ his sovereignty, wisdom, and goodness. Can you be stretched in gratitude even for that, for that uncertainty? I mean, it does mean that you're not in control of this uncontrollable world, and, and that probably should be liberating, uh, but being stretched by this uncertainty. What about the uncertainty in how you are received? Will you be the fragrance of Christ's life or the stench of Christ's death to people who hear and see Christ in you? Because just because somebody thinks you're the stench of Christ's death doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. And just because you seem to be the fragrance of his life doesn't mean that you're necessarily doing what's right. There's some uncertainty in how people will receive you as you live Christ. Uh, before them and with them, can you be stretched to even be uh, thankful and grow in gratitude in that uncertainty? But also there's extreme certainty in salvation, because those people who are in Christ's hand, if anyone were to snatch you out of Jesus's hand, Jesus himself has failed. Jesus says that in John 6, no one can snatch them from my hand. This is my mission from the Father, that I lose nothing of all that he's given me. So if he does, Jesus is a big failure. And that is absolutely impossible. And there's certainty in this. Uh, perhaps some of you need to be stretched a bit in, uh, in this aspect. And we come back to, to where we started with this image. Uh, saltwater taffy really needs to be stretched. And that's part of the process of, of having it become the delightful thing that can actually bless lots of other people is this stretching over and over and over again. And this is what God, what, what I've seen and I, I still see God doing in my life as I go to different cultures. And that's why I've got a world of gratitude in front of me because, because as he stretched me, I've seen that he is shaping me into someone uh, that can help others uh, with some very important things. I have a lot more stretching that I need, but I'm grateful for whatever God is going to do, even though a lot of it's going to be really uncomfortable. I would love to take 
your comments or your questions now.